Today, we have more labor-saving devices than we've had at, at any other time in history. You don't do the washing up anymore. You put it in a machine and you, and you, and you push a button. We have vacuum cleaners. We have Swiffers. We have, we have robots that, that, that vacuum our house while we're out doing other stuff. People are sinking in their distress. I wonder how, how far we have to sink before we cry out three smartest words. Jesus, save me. At the end of our last session, we, we ended with a um, quite a pointed question that, that God seems to infer to Abraham when he says, do you want what you've got or do you want what I have for you? That's an amazing question. And, and if, we, if we're honest, we all know the Jesus answer to that, right? Oh, I want what God's got. <laughs> yeah, but... And there's always a but. Um, I do want what God's got, but you see, I live in this 21st century reality where other things have 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 constraints on my time and, and make demands of my life. And, and I have to do all these different things. And I've got busy schedule and I've got all these things that I want to cram in and do. And I've got this my own bucket list and, and I've got these retirement plans and I've got these life plans and I've got and I've got education plans and goals. And, and where do I fit God's plan in around that? But that's not the question. The question is, do you want what you've got or do you want what God's got? Even if what God's got for you is outside the realm of your experience. Now, to illustrate this a bit, just a bit, I want us to look at this story. It's in Matthew chapter 14. Now, as we read this story, you're going to start thinking, hang on a minute. We talked about this the other week and we did ish. But we talked about it from Mark chapter six. Now, this is Matthew writing about a very similar circumstance with one major difference. There's a human element to this that is not in the Mark six accounts. Now, I don't know if these are, are two different stories about two different accounts, but what happens in Matthew 14 is very different than what happens in Mark six. So that's why I want to look at. Matthew 14. This is the story so far. And you'll start to recognize it straight away. And you'll think, yeah, no, hang on a minute. This is what we read in Mark 6. But no, it's not. Right? Listen. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get in a boat and go across to the other side of the lake while he sent the people away. Remember the story in Mark 6. He's fed the 5,000 just as he has here in Matthew 14. Gets in the boat and they all go off. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from the land for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting, not normal waves, heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came walking towards them 
on the water. Now, in the Mark 6 version of this, Jesus comes along walking on the water and makes out like he's going to go past, but actually gets in the boat. In, in other words, he identifies with them in their struggle and gets in the boat with them. In this story, he doesn't, but he's still walking on the water, right? So he's walking out towards them on the water. And this is what it says. They were terrified. I'm not making this up. This is what it says, right? About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came towards them walking on the water. That's in verse 25. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, it says it over and over again, walking on the water, walking on the water. They were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. Now you think, if we were doing this in the Sunday school, very twee version, we would think if they're in the middle of a storm and everything's against them, um, and Jesus comes walking out towards them, they do think, oh, yeah, Jesus is here to rescue us. No, they're terrified. It's a very human reaction. It's not like, here comes Jesus. <laughs> or, and they're not singing Kumbaya with wet guitars in a storm. They're terrified. Why? Because normal people do not walk on the water. And they say, it's a ghost. Well, of course they did. Of course they did. It terrified them. It's a ghost. You know, you know ghosts have no substance. They don't hold up in the light of day. There's no tangible reality to ghosts. And sometimes people interpret Jesus' teachings like that. And they interpret the historical facts of Jesus' life like that. Ah, it's just ghosts. It's got no substance. But Jesus is about to show them that he has substance. In fact, when he turns up and sees his disciples after the resurrection, he makes sure that they know that he has substance. They say, touch me. He says to them, touch me. Touch my hands. See the nail scars in my hands. See the marks in my feet. Touch the, the spear thrust in my side. Touch it. I'm real. Then he eats some stuff. He proves that he has substance. They look at this ghost, what they think is a ghost, and they think, ah, ghost, but no substance. I meet people all the time who have a spirituality about them, but it's no substance to it. It can't hold up in the light of day. It's just some nice ideas, some nice little mantras, some nice things that you recite over and over again to make yourself feel better in the moment. But no real substance. And as they look at him here, they think he has no substance. But the God that I met and the Savior that grabbed hold of my life has substance. And that's the wonderful thing about it. So let's keep reading. What happens? Let me ask you a question. When Jesus comes walking on the water, traditionally, right, because the, the text doesn't tell us, but traditionally, and if you Googled artwork about Jesus walking on the water, the old masters, when they painted these things, how many people do we think traditionally would have been in the boat when Jesus came walking? I'll give you a hint. The answer begins with twa and ends with elf. Okay, so we traditionally think there's probably 12. 
Let me ask you another question. How many people in the boat were in trouble? All of them. Every single person in the boat is in trouble at this point. That's why it's a little bit irrelevant of how many people are in the boat. Maybe that's why I like to think, maybe that's why it doesn't tell us how many there were. Because it doesn't matter how many there were, they are all in trouble. Every single one of them is fighting against the circumstances. And here comes Jesus, who they interpret is a ghost, and he is walking on the very source of this, the source of their problems. He's just walking straight over them. They're not, the problems aren't freaking him out. He just walks clear across the top of them. You know, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament writings, in Revelation and stuff like that. Water, ocean, sea, storms symbolize chaos. I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in chaotic times. Even outside of COVID, our lives are chaos. And yet Jesus comes along and and through the centuries and through the millennium, a couple of millenniums since Jesus was on the earth, in all the political storms and the wars and the famines and the things and the tragedies that happen, his kingdom is constant. He just walks across the top of it all. And it's not that he doesn't affect him because it deeply moves him with emotion, but he has the answer that walks solidly across the top of all the things that cause us issues and problems. And that's what happens here. So how many people are in trouble? All of them. How many people are in the boat? All of them. How many, how many people are in trouble? All of them. Yet only one opens his mouth. Only one. And he shouts out to Jesus this. This is what he says. In verse 28... This is, what, this is what Peter says. Oh, before that, in verse 27, there's this great phrase that Jesus uses, that we talked about this in Mark 6, because it's the same phrase that he uses. He says, don't be afraid. Take courage. Take heart. I'm here. That's what Jesus says. In fact, now we dress it up all nicely in the English language and the different translations. But actually... The words that Jesus uses in, in the Greek are this. He says, courage, I. Confidence, I. And I love that. Confidence, not in yourself. Confidence in me, Jesus. is saying this about himself. Confidence, I. Courage, I. Why? Because I can walk across the top of everything that gives you trouble. I can walk over the very source of your storm. Can walk over it confidence i and then peter says these words peter then called out to jesus lord if it's really you tell me to come to you walking on water tell me not just not just tell me to come to you tell me coming to come to you doing exactly what you're doing i bet all of the guys in that boat we're looking out at that storm, looking at Jesus walking on the water and saying, wow, that is cool. 
I would like to, and I write that on my bucket list. I want to do that. Walking on water, that is a good trick. I want, I want to do that. But only one of them says, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Only one of them. I wonder why. Maybe it's because, maybe it's because that the answer to their problem looks unlike anything they've ever seen before. You see, these are experienced fishermen. Now, if we put this in the modern day 21st century, we would say the answer to our storm is a bigger boat. It's a better vessel. It's a more powerful motor. It's better navionics. In other words, a better automatic autopilot uh, linked to a chart plotter. Maybe it's a, it's a better sea drogue. Maybe it's a, it's a better wind vane. Uh, maybe it's better all of those things. But those are things that we know and understand. And the, and the, the solution to the problem for, for these guys in the original telling of this story in the first century would, would probably have been a, a better steering system and a bigger vessel. <laughs> but it wouldn't have been walking on the water. The answer to the problem was so far out of the realm of their experience that they thought it had no substance. And maybe we are just like them and we're looking at the answer to our problem, who, who is in himself, Jesus. And we think, yeah, but, but that's so far out of the realm of, of, of our experience, of our, of our coping through ourselves, that it actually looks as if it has no substance. But there's the answer and it's right there in front of us. And only one of them has the guts and the courage to say, tell me to come to you walking on the water. And, he, and, and Jesus looks at this little glint in his eye. I'm sure he did. Like, okay. Big mouth, <laughs> come on, come on, come on. You walk on the water, come on, out here with me. And he gets out of the boat. What courage does that take? Gets out of the boat and walks on the water. But then he gets distracted. It doesn't say how long it takes for him to get distracted. I think it's probably pretty quick. He gets distracted. I'm going to read it to you so you think I'm not making don't think I'm making this up. That's what it says. So Peter went over the side of the boat. This is in verse 29. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. And all the other guys are going, wow, that's a neat trick. Peter's doing it too. Look at that. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Abraham was on a journey, right? He, he went on this journey. He was invited by Jesus, to, 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 by God, to go on this journey. Abraham, leave your land. Leave, your, leave the, the things that you know. Leave the things that give you security. And, 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 and come with me because I want to take you to a place uh, where, where you don't have what you've got now, but you have what I have for you. When Jesus says these words to Peter, come on, come out over the boat and, and come and walk with me. Peter starts a journey and the journey that he starts leads him from the boat, but leads him to three words. He starts a journey that will lead him to saying the three smartest words that a human being has ever sent, said. This is what it says. Now listen to this. 
when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. And he shouted out, Lord, save me. Three words. Lord, save me. It's gently three words. I've read this in most of the translations. Lord, save me. Jesus, rescue me. Lord, help me. Save me, Lord. It's always three words. And Peter shouts out these three words. Now, I have a question. When does he shout these words out? Well, it tells us right here in the text. When he started to sink, when he started to sink, he shouted them out. I have a question for you. How far have you got to sink before you shout out these three words? How far has a human being got to sink before they cry out for help to the one person who's standing in front of them? How far do we have to sink? You know, it's actually true that today we have more labor-saving devices than we've had at, at any other time in history. It always makes me laugh when I come home and my son says, hey, I've done the laundry. I think, no, no, you haven't. You just put it in a machine, you pushed a button. You didn't do the washing. You put it in a machine, you did the brush. You, you don't do the washing up anymore. You put it in a machine and you, and you, and you push a button. And, then, and now um, kids complain if they have to unload the dishwasher rather than doing the whole thing by hand. So we have all these labor-saving devices. We have all these things that give us more free time. We have all these different things. We have, we have cars that take us on massive journeys of distances that used to take whole days to travel or to walk or go by donkey and horse and cart. We have all these things to help us in our life. We have vacuum cleaners. We don't have to brush by hand. We have Swiffers. We have, we have robots that... that that vacuum our house while we're out doing other stuff. My friend has a, has a robot who he calls Carson that cuts his grass every day, all day long. When he's out, his robot just cuts his grass. And yet with all these labor-saving devices that give us more free time, we have more stress-related illness in humanity in the Western world than we've ever had in any other time in history. People are sinking in their distress and in their stress. I wonder how, how far we have to sink before we cry out the three words, three smartest words that a human being has ever said. Jesus, save me. Lord, rescue me. Save me, Lord. The next words in the text are these. Immediately, Jesus grabs him, just grabs him. I don't know where he grabs him by, but he grabs him by his hair, or he grabs him by his ear, or he grabs him by the scruff of his neck or his collar at the back. I like to think he grabs him by his collar at the back of his back of his coat and grabs him. But you notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, Peter, if you'd studied more, if you'd just tried harder, if you knew the molecular structure of water and you understood water tension, surface tension, if you understood the physics of that, you wouldn't have sunk. He didn't say that. He just grabbed him. I remember the day that I 
prayed the first time, Jesus, save me. Jesus, rescue me. (laughs) He didn't highlight all the failures in my life. He just grabbed me. He grabbed me. Don't wait to sink any longer. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing right now, wherever you're listening to this, why wait any longer? Why wait? Humanity is sinking in it and it's lost in it and it's lost its way, it's lost its direction. It reaches out to spirituality to try to rescue it. But the answer is right there in front of us. And it's just waiting for us to say those three words. Jesus, rescue me. Lord, save me. Save me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Help me, Jesus. Those three words. I pray right now, in the name of Jesus, wherever you are listening to this, that you have the guts and the courage that it takes to say, Lord, save me. Father, in Jesus' name, as as people are listening to this, as, as this person is listening to this right now, who knows that as they're sinking, they need to cry out to you for help. Give them the courage that it takes to say, Lord, save me. And I thank you that as we say that, you reach out and grab us in the middle of our sinking. Thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. You know, thanks for listening, wherever you are. There's a church nearby that you can go to to talk to somebody about the fact that you said those three words. Please go and do it. Call us, email us, whatever you like. Bless you and keep shouting those three words. Jesus, rescue me. Jesus, save me. Lord, help me. Save me, Lord. Bless you and stay safe. In the midst of uncertainty, our faith can struggle. Our walk becomes labored, our heart heavy. There's something about the unknown which seems to weaken us. It drains our patience and blurs our focus. Yet in the middle of everything stands a faithful God. A God who's not swayed by the struggle, who isn't moved by the winds of chaos. A God who remains faithful even when our faith is fragile. It seems more difficult than ever to not worry about tomorrow. Yet that's exactly what God has asked us to do. For when we cast our burdens on Him, the troubles of the moment begin to fade. When we trust the plans he has for us, our fear begins to subside. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our focus becomes consumed by clarity. Yes, we are in the midst of uncertainty, but we can be certain of one thing, God is faithful. And that is more than enough for tomorrow.
Because you were forsaken, I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me. Because you died and rose again.